Hello, everyone. My name is TJ Schwartz. I'm here with my co-host, Lucas Burnley. You are listening to Edge and Flow podcast. So today we had an exciting kind of topic that kind of was brought to the surface, and uh, we'd love for you to come along with the conversation. And we wanted to just discuss why the knife industry, why knives, why are we makers, what what are we doing here? So I guess I'll take that broad question and I'll point it at you, Luke, to start this out. <laughs> sure, sure. Uh, man, that's a that's a really loaded question. So, um, so I've been in the knife industry for about twenty years at this point. Next year is my is my official. 20th year. Um, the knife industry, I don't know if when I first started, I thought about like it as a, (laughs) as a, as a, like as an entity, right. I wanted to make things. I had gone through trade school. I worked in trades for a little while. I was a welder. Um, aspects of that really clicked with me, but the small metals, were where my interest kind of fell, right? Like the detail, super detail oriented, um, it's functional. It ties in with design. Like there's so much around knives. Um, I think that make them interesting as a, as a business, right? There's no glass ceiling, right? You can, there's always something, a technique, a material, a genre, an era. There's always something to explore. Yeah. One thing I get from that answer is the knife industry is huge, right? Bigger than I'll speak for myself, bigger than I thought by a huge margin. So like when I first came in, it kind of shocked me, you know, it like, I wouldn't say I was overwhelmed, but I was kind of like dumbstruck by the, the scale of the industry and the vastness and the complexity and the just diversity of the industry. And it's, it's, I relive that thought process of when I first came in, when I explained to other people what it is that I do, because I tell people I'm an, I'm a knife designer and that's what I've used, used to say mostly. And now I start to say I'm more, I'm a knife maker as it's a more recent trend for me to be doing that. But people say you design knives full time. You're in the knife industry full time. And people say, how is it such a small niche can support a full-time career? Yeah. And, and, and then when they say that, I'm like, oh, you have no idea. Like you have no idea how many careers are in existence today that are in the knife industry, you know? Yeah. And I guess, I mean, when you think about industry, like we are a smaller industry, mm-hmm. doesn't feel that way if you're involved in it, oh, you exactly. know, it's as big as it needs to be. And one thing I explain to people when they have that kind of dumbstruck look, when they're like, whoa, like you're a full-time knife guy, like, how's that work? And I explain, okay, so think of all the things that you own and what you own multiples of. And, and for example, you own, you know, if you're a sneaker guy, you might own a lot of shoes, but the average person, you know, three to five pairs of shoes or whatever. And, uh, what else do you own that many or more of other than let's say shoes to start with? And they think, oh, I don't know, like not very many things, maybe, maybe watches, maybe a few articles of clothing. And I say, how many knives do you own? And then you, you think and you say, well, my dad gave me one. I did buy it one. And then I, I have like, oh, there's kitchen knives. Do those count? And then you think, well, I have one in my backpack that I don't really use. And, and then pretty soon you're like, I might own more knives than anything else. And I say, Are, would you consider yourself a knife connoisseur or a knife nerd? And they say, no, not at all. I don't know anything about them. It's like, yet it's the mo- one of the most plentiful items in your house. And then you think about that and say, that's everyone. So how many absolutely are, how yeah many and mad, are out now there? you you take that to the nth degree yeah. and you put a collector in there yep you know well it's interesting too because you and I came to the knife industry from like very different places and there's about a decade between us right, right. so mm-hmm. how I mean how did you really get started in in knives at all coming in from a design standpoint yeah so I was I in high school was like obsessed with cars I don't remember when that bug bit me it might have been middle school but I was just inexplicably obsessed with the automobile. Right. And from a young age, I was like, I want to design cars. You know, I want to, I want to design and work in the auto industry. Like I was like, Oh, what a Ford motor company. Like, what if I worked for them? It'd be amazing, you know? And so I was like, well, and I had kind of a affinity for mathematics and like engineering type things. And so I thought, well, obviously I'll go be a mechanical engineer. And so I uh, enrolled to be a mechanical engineer in, in school when I graduated. And that was at Boise State University in Boise. And 
I had also an affinity for like pencil artwork. So drawing, you know, I was like, I would draw a lot of cars. I mean, like a lot. I mean, I would spend hours <laughs> a day in college, you know, and in the late years of high school and just, and I had like a small business I called carbon handprint designs. And it was a play on words. Cause like carbon footprint, carbon handprint, because like pencil lead is pencil lead is carbon, you know? So I was like, a little pun there, I guess you could say. And so I had like a Facebook page, like carbon handprint designs. And I would actually go to like a, like a vintage car show, like a muscle car show. And I would have a portfolio and I would try to get uh, car owners to pay me to draw their car in like a setting that they wanted. And I didn't do a whole lot of that because most of what I did was like my ambition is like something I wanted to draw, but I was doing that and selling those drawings and on this Facebook page. And I would like, I would literally message like, there's Facebook pages called like Mustang and it wasn't actually like a Ford page. It was just like a fan page and it would be like Mustang hot rods page on Facebook. And you got to remember this was in the early days of Facebook. So it was like kind of contrived. It, it was old Facebook, but I would, I would say like, if I pay you 50 bucks, will you share this drawing that I did of a Mustang of a 69 Mustang? <laughs> and I would, I would pay them and they would share it. And then I, I like loved seeing like the car people's feedback on the drawing. And then I would like sell a drawing and I would turn that money and I would pay someone else on Facebook to share another drawing. And I had like oh, $0 in college. And I was just like paying Facebook pages to it's just a pyramid it. scheme that you created yeah. for yourself <laughs> to share drawings. Yeah. And there was times where I was like, man, I would love to, this is what I want to do. Like, I love doing this. And, but it's like, I can't really monetize this. Like I couldn't think of a way to monetize like drawing cars. So I kind of stayed the path. And, but what really occurred to me is like, man, the auto industry is very Goliath and very bureaucratic and very like, it's very regimented and stuff. And I thought like, well, the entry level car designer, quote unquote, would be like, you're drafting something that is a component of a light switch or a headlight or a tail light, something that is really minute and kind of irrelevant to like the scale of the overall design and the number of people that actually design cars is like astonishingly few, you know? And you're not getting a lot of times you're not getting credit for it because you're yeah. just, you're and no, just one cog in the machine. There's like chip foos and like a couple other names out there, but really there's nothing. And so I, I started to think like, man, that's not going to fit me. Like that's going to be a problem because I'm not going to feel like I've creative, a creative outlet if I'm in that environment. And around that time, I had a friend who's from, he, I went to high school with him and his name's Bill Koenig, Koenig Knives, if you're familiar with them. But this was, in those days, he was looking to start Koenig Knives. It was a new company. And he messaged me. And like I said, we'd gone to high school together. So he asked me, he's like, hey man, um, can you draw me a knife? Because he'd seen that I was drawing cars all the time. And in engineering school, I was taking a SolidWorks course. And so this is where the flashpoint happened. I was like, well, let me, let me 3D model the knife because I want to, I want to do that. It'd be kind of fun. So like the first what year thing was this 2013. Wow. Okay. Yeah. And so I, 2012, 2013, probably 13. And so he, uh, so I modeled a knife for him, started that. And then through exposure, uh, through him to the knife industry. And I started going to blade shows real early on. I realized what we had just talked about, about the scale of the industry and it's just struck me like a lightning rod of like, oh my gosh, I can design a knife, like design a fully functioning knife from the beginning to the end and get it into the, into the market, into people's hands and not feel like this small cog and like a big mechanism. And I was like, oh, that, that's what I want. Right. And so I, immediately yeah, the number pivoted. of floors to the top is, is different. Yeah. Right? Mm -hmm. Like you can walk around blade show and you can routinely interact with the owner or the founder of a knife company. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And you can meet on common ground. Like there's a lot of industries where you can't do that. There's such a huge separation. hundred oh, percent. And SHOT right? Show, I went to SHOT Show around that time. So meeting the executives of different knife companies at SHOT Show, seeing the knife industry, seeing where I was, I, I was at the end of my sophomore year of college, I dropped out and just went full-time knife stuff. So that's- What that's, year was that? That was, that would have been- Fort spring of 14 would have been my last semester. When did you and I first meet? Was that around 14? Could have been a year later, Maybe but it would 2015. have 2015. I actually don't remember. Do you remember the first time we met? 
I don't know mm-hmm. if I remember that moment or what that was. Mm-mm. It was either a blade show. Yeah, probably at blade show, which again is like a great example mm-hmm. of kind of the scale of the industry. You can go to the industry's largest trade show and still end up making like really meaningful small scale connections, but right. also be completely, you know, access accessible to the top. Yeah. Like yeah, it's yeah. crazy. It is amazing. So tell me more, like you, you kind of brushed through how, like, I think you told me you were in the job corps. Is that correct? Yeah. And- so, so I left, I left home when I was like 16, I went to job corps and I went through their welding program. Mm-hmm. And after that welding program, I basically enrolled at a community college, which was central New Mexico community college. Um, and I was in the machining program. Mm -hmm. As I was working through that machining program, I got like a school to work, you know, I got like a, I forget what, like an internship almost at a small machine shop that did body piercing jewelry. Mm -hmm. So that was the first time I'd ever worked around like reactive metals, like titanium or niobium, um, and kind of getting to, see like CNC machining and and just different finishing techniques. Um, a lot of that kind of started there. Uh, and it's funny as you were talking about the drawing thing, I realized like I had a very small business before any of this. So when I was in job corps, I would like hang out in my room after school and I would make sterling silver chain mail, like little bracelets and stuff. And I had like a little jewelry case and I would go around to, like shops in Albuquerque and I would sell jewelry. That's totally amazing. makes sense. Like you, you come at it from like a very design oriented process and I came at it from a product process, That's but cool. it, I like, I completely forgot about that. Mm-hmm. So yeah, just like in, in, in course of like working in that machine shop, like I made a knife with one of the machinists that was there and then it just kind of like snowballed. So do you remember the moment that you knew that you were, you were a lifer or at least the era? Yeah. I mean, it would have been probably around like 2002, 2001. Like somebody told me you can't make a living making knives. And I remember that being like, I remember feeling like this challenge of like, no, you can't. Um, and, and I have, I'm like cursed with like looking very far into the future. Um, I actually think it's like an anxiety thing where I try to plan for all eventualities, but if I'm going to do something, I'm like planning it for 10 years from now. So I just started in the knife industry, like making knives, but I always had this thing of like, okay, when I get here, when I, get to this point, like when I get to work with this company, like way before I had any reason to have, have like any of those thoughts. Um, yeah. And I think it just kind of like snowballed and ended up where we are now. (laughs) Right. Right. So it's almost a, you felt challenged to, to prove a little bit. Yeah. Maybe like initially, and that's like Mm -hmm. probably an age thing too. Like I came Mm -hmm. in when I was 19. So like when you're 19, everything's a challenge. Oh Yeah. You know, even, even like reality. Yeah. And that was the same age that I was doing the same thing. So I I can relate a hundred percent. That's an interesting, it's an interesting process. Like the, the industry's changed a lot in the time that I've been in it. And I mean, really in the time that you've been in it too, like it's an exponential kind of growth in the last decade. No doubt. Right. I, I remember when I first came in, the thicker the blade, the better. Oh yeah. I was was in that full tack in that era where it was like, Oh my gosh, did you see this X and Y knife? It's got a three eighths inch blade. That's only three (laughs) and a half inches long. You know what I mean? I still love it too. And, and that as a main center focus of like where design was going has changed, (laughs) you know? Oh, fully. Well, I think it, it moved more into folders, like just, again, exponentially, but it's also visual cues for design. Like coming out of that point, like we were involved in wars for quite a while. I think a lot of the visuals were this like really heavy tactical, like aggressive, robust look. Um, 
And yeah, I think that's, I think that's changed a little bit. So I like, I've read on your website, you have like a mini bio and you Mm -hmm. mentioned that your design language you consider to be post-tactical. Yeah. Is that, is that in line with what you're saying? Yeah, I would say, I would say that overall, like the style that brought me into knives was like the tactical market. It was, they were very, very utilitarian. A lot of them were either like from some like offensive or defensive, like hand-to-hand combat, like thought process, like you see, like the Emersons, you know, and like the Striders, like just tough and rugged, super functional, simple strip down. Um, and I realized like for my own work, like as I refined and the finishes changed and the materials changed, they still kind of fell into this tactical market. But to me, it didn't feel like a genuine explanation of like what that was. And so Mm -hmm. I just started calling them post-tactical because I saw that the origins were fully in the tactical era of knives, but I felt like it was, it was a design language that was incorporated, but not like encompassing. Oh, I can totally picture that. When when I heard that or read that post-tactical, it really kind of it really stuck with me because that was years ago when I read that last, but I, I don't know if it's still on your site, but I, I remember reading that and thinking, you know, that's absolutely true because you hear about like Bob Trezuela and how he's like the father of the modern tactical folder. And when I first heard him described as that, I was like, is it really tactical? Like I, I didn't know that this was tactical. And then you right. look at the lineage and you see where the tactical came from. And then I agree with you that tactical doesn't describe a lot of what we're doing nowadays in the knife industry. So like when I read post-tactical, I thought, man, that is, that's dead on. You know, it seems like, you know, some of these things that we try to explain or put a name on, like I put that name on it for myself so that when I'm Mm. involved in the design process, I have a way to like categorize what I'm working on or, or what, um, kind of what my inspiration is at the time. And it, I have really broad interests in knives and a lot of what I like isn't even what I make. Like I just, I love like super like brute to forge, like rough, you know, forge to finish knives. I love historical reproductions. Like there's, again, it's, it's so broad. Um, so did it, let's talk about that a little bit. What, what do you like? Like what put your design language aside? What is your, I'm not going to say what's the, like the pinnacle of knife design as far as a single knife. Sure. But like like what, what does it for me? Yeah. 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 Okay. So here in a nutshell, I like big fixed blades that feel fast. So I, I came at knives from like a very weapons oriented standpoint. Um, And so to me, like the, the pinnacle of what, like, that is, I think it's just like, you know, it's a 10 inch bladed fighter, um, that moves in your hand. Like there, there's something that is so, uh, I want to say like animalistic or like human, like you pick it up and you're like, you understand it and you're like, oh, okay, I can, I can like trust my life in this thing. Yeah, for sure. Um, and I think that when I say speed that relates to like proper balance and the flow of design as it relates to the human body. Like, so you can have a big heavy knife, but if it's shaped correctly with the weight in the right places, it's going to feel like an extension of your hand. Right. Like a big cat as opposed to a bull. (laughs) Exactly. Fluid, but but large. Yeah. Fluid, but large. Powerful. So that's uh, yeah, man, that's what, that's what really, really does it just as like an example of a specific knife. Um, I would say that the knives that Jason Knight makes squarely fall into that category on like a regular basis. Like if you see him walking around at blade show with, with some big Kukri or big Bowie or fighter, and you pick that thing up, it almost doesn't make sense of like, how light and fast how and low effective drag. it feels. Yeah. yeah it's, I haven't it's held everything one. it needs uh, now to be. I, now I need to hold one. Yeah. We'll have to, we'll have to go try to find him and see. He's usually walking around with something. Okay. So I'll, I'll look forward what to about that. you? What is the, what's the, the Goldilocks? I'm a, I'm an outdoorsman. Like that's, I grew up in a microscopic 
town part of the country in Idaho, little tiny town. And, uh, but really, really just dense, just wilderness all around it. And so I, I, I was really spoiled growing up and I've learned that that was not as, that was more unique than I thought at the time, as far as what that lifestyle was like. But when I picture a knife, I picture being outdoors, hunting, fishing. And when I say hunting, I guess I've never designed a knife that I consider to be like a game processing knife. You know, it's more of like when you're outdoors, like I think of something that can ultimately first things first, how well does it cut? So like the geometry and the shape of it, as far as like when I look at some designs, I think, well, it's beautiful and all that, but can it cut, you know? And so it's not stabbing that I, that I think about. It's not, it's not like, uh, you know, lateral stress forces. I'm thinking like, how well can it cut? How well can I, and also be strong enough to use on like kindling. And so when I think, when I think about it, I think, what would I carry when I'm backpacking? Almost always is what I like kind of turn back to when I think about like, not only what am I going to design, but like, what am I going to buy or carry? Or what do I envision myself carrying? If I can't picture myself backpacking with it, in other words, it's light enough, but also bold enough and useful enough. If I can't picture it in a backpacking trip, I I, I tend to lean away from it, if that makes sense. It perfect sense. It's funny. It's like, yeah, you hear hunting knife and I think it means different things to different people. So it's like hunting can encompass a burden trout. It can encompass like a green river skinner. They're very different from a, from a design and usability function standpoint. Right. Totally. A lot of it, I think it comes down to experience enhancement. It's that idea of like, oh, you're like out walking in the woods, like you're out stalking or you're out scouting or whatever it is. And your knife is something that is with you that like you're able to use. Yeah. And it's a, it's it's a confidence thing too. Totally. It's a a confidence builder to have a tool that you trust. And that also circles back to a little philosophy that I have is that like form is second to function, but both should exist in a, in a well-refined product. So in other words, like form is not the most important thing, but you can't ignore human psychology when you're designing because you are more likely, this is like proven in, in scientific studies that you're more likely to trust something that you are aesthetically pleased by. It's, it's just like a natural part of being a human. Right. And so if you, you, you trust and rely on something that you visually are appealing, appealed to, right. You know? And so like that is something that can't be ignored and it's, it's easy to get into the mindset of, well, it should do its job. And if, and that is all that matters and it will look the way it looks. I'm not right that I'm not that way, but at the same time, the, if the visual effect that you're going for interferes with the functionality, then you got a problem. Totally. You know I mean? Yeah. That borders that starts to like border on like the fantasy side of knife making in a way where you're so tied to a visual cue. But I think the knife industry is a great example of form and function existing in balance and the idea that like function should not come at the cost of form. Like it's not, it's not necessary. Like, yeah, you can just like sharpen a piece of steel and like grind a pry tip on it. And like, it's a bar of steel, right? Still does a job. It doesn't mean that that's doing, doing a better job than something with a little more, you know, care in the design. But again, some of it is up is, is substantially like, or I guess subjective to aesthetic preference. Right. Right. Yeah. Have you, have you ever messed with any of like, uh, Mora knives or like any of the, like, yeah. Yeah. So that when you were talking about that idea of like the type of function, and the tasks that you have, like for me, Mora is like firmly situated in that. Mm-hmm. They're also super affordable, which it's like one of those things, like I have a few of them and I just love them. Cause I feel like it does everything it needs to be. They're aesthetically pleasing. Like they use color in their designs. And as a tool, it like, even though it's inexpensive, it feels like very well-made to me. Absolutely. And you touched on color. So one of the things in my relationship with CRKT as a designer that I've really tried to bring forward is it's something I made up, I guess, but I call it color science. So in other words, one of the ways that you can 
aesthetically improve or change a product, especially a knife, without immediately compromising function is color. You know, so like what kind of color, where is the color, how much color, what's the contrast, what's the, you know, how is the palette composed color-wise? And I think it's something that is understudied, I guess, in some sometimes in the knife industry and in many industries. And it's like, like I said, if, if you want to inject life into something, color is one of the ways to do it. And so I've tried to use that across like a broad path of like what I design, you know? And so it's like the knife can be excellent and functional and also, you know, beautiful, but you can put the cherry on top per se, you know, with the right colors. And so it's, it's stuff like that, that it may seem peripheral to the design. You know, it could be, uh, you know, executed as an afterthought, like, well, what color is going to be? I don't know. I like this color. But if it's like, if you think of it more of like a holistic composition and it's like all these things going into it, color is such a big part of it. And that's again, to the human nature. I mean, color is so important to humans. It, it can drive emotion. You know what I mean? Which is part of what you're trying to do. Yeah, absolutely. I think I was thinking about Loveless when you were mentioning that, like the idea of like he used red liners a lot of times. And if you put that in a period of time, where just just the application of a red liner under like olive drab or under stag, like it material wise, it it fits with the materials of the time. But color wise, I think it was like it pushed just a little bit past with what a lot of people were comfortable and with. And there was a subtlety to it. There's a well. yeah, it's very subtle and it's yeah. well placed. I think he had described it as like a little bit of lipstick on a pretty girl. And it, mm-hmm. that's like a very loveless feeling, uh, you know, phrase, but it makes perfect sense where I think now it's super commonplace. Like lots of people, if you're making fixed blades, you're doing, you know, you're doing liners, liners comes, come in all different colors, mm-hmm. but it, yeah, I think there's, if we look at color theory from the standpoint of knives, like there's a lot of range that has like yet to be explored. And, I, but mm-hmm. I do think now I think it's more commonplace mm-hmm. um, than yeah. it was like, you know, going back to like the early two thousands where it's like black and gray. Yep. Yeah. Those and, are the colors. And I know one thing that I've heard you say many, many times, and it, it's probably just an extension of this conversation is you've talked about textures. Oh, totally. And, and that's a whole nother dimension. Yeah. Well, in that like color texture, form like as we're looking at a design from like kind of a holistic standpoint it's almost like form and function for me it's interesting because you and i both are making physical products in our own shops but we're also involved in the design of products that are going to mass production Uh, and there's probably a whole podcast like just talking about the differences in what works on a custom level versus what works in mass production. Um, but it, when you're, when you're designing for production, a lot of times we're going from a place of not having seen the physical product and specking out material texture, color kind of all in all at once. And so, Mm. yeah, I think there's, I think if you put a little more thought into it, like it creates more flexibility and a better end product. No, hundred percent. I agree. And, and that to circle back to our original premise of like, why the knife industry, what you're describing and what we've just <laughs> gone over is like the amount of information being, com- you know, condensed into the final product of what a knife is and the amount of thought that goes into it is immense, but at the same time can be under the scope of one designer. Right. Again, what I'd mentioned earlier of like, if you're in the car industry or some other industry, like having control over the color, whether it's a metallic paint or a flat paint, you know, whether the taillights are blacked out or not versus like, what's the interior contrast? Like no one man can have that like under his whole and under his scope of like what he's doing. And I'm sure there is some guy that's doing that, you know, that's kind of like like a final oversight. Yeah. Like an oversight. But I mean, it's rare that there's an industry where there is so much going on that is condensed into the scope of a single designer. And that's amazing. That's something that I love about the industry and that has formed for me like an addiction, you know? Yeah. Well, I mean, you you nailed it. Like 
just off of a, a pretty easy topic, like we're just starting to rabbit hole into specifics of our industry. And that's the beauty of it. Like it's never ending. That's right. You know, it when you're uh, like thinking about color, I don't know why I just thought about like Tinker Hatfield and, and Nike. Like that is that same control of end product where, you know, he's like envisioning a sneaker and he's specking out like the materials and the colors, like super satisfying to like be at the end of that and be like, I had my hand on every part of this shoe. That's right. And I imagine the shoe industry. Yeah. I I can, I, I, it has to be similar, right? Right. To the knife industry in some ways. And another one that's, this is another metaphor that I've used to describe it to, you know, people that try to understand what I do is the music industry is what I've compared it to. Because in the music industry, you have people that perform live music. And I directly compare that to someone who makes custom knives. And then you have record labels who are the CRKTs, the Kershaws, the design, you know, the companies that, that farm designs. Right. And then you have the musicians that are at the level where they are being farmed to then produce for like the mass public. And those people also can produce, can produce live music as well, but it's a different art form than what you would put on a record in some ways. And so there's, when people ask like what it's like, I say like, well, producing music, you know, you're trying to reach like a, a, a population that's large, you know, like that's the whole goal. And so like, dealing with a a production label and how is that monetized? How does that work? How do those contracts work? But also the discipline underneath that of like live music and stuff like that, that feels different, that looks different, that you might view a different way. And I'm not a musician, so I can't say that I'm speaking from like experience, but just generally as an overview, like it seems seems artistically similar. Well, And, and then you've got, you've got, so, you know, distributors or, you know, um, knife purveyors being either like venues or, or, you know, a radio station or, or Spotify, right. Maybe because you have like that distribution level too. And another thread that brings it together, which I think is important with the knife industry specifically is the primal nature of it. So like with knives, it's like the most primal tool probably that's ever existed. I mean, there can't be much that occurred in development before the knife. Right. You know, because it's like if you pick up a rock and you smash a turtle open to eat it, it's like right. pretty soon, maybe later that week, you're going to try to sharpen the rock. You know what I mean? So Right. Or get another more sharp rock. Right. And it's like, you got to think they were using a rock to make some tunes around the same time. Yeah. And it's like, you know what I mean? So it it's it really kind of expands and it's kind of a, it's kind of wacky to talk about it. I, I mean, I mean I yes and no. I mean design in general, regardless of what it, like, if you look at, you go back to cars, mm-hmm. right? If you listen to, or a, or a motorcycle, if you listen to like a loud rumbling engine, that has to be connecting to some part of your animal brain where you're like big, like bear, like mm-hmm. you're projecting like space, That's you know? Right. I mean, knives at, at the most basic level, gave us teeth and claws because mm-hmm. we are super soft. We're really slow. We have bad, I say bad hearing, but we have big brains. Yep. And we have sharp tools and we have sharp tools. <laughs> <Yeah>. It's like, <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. And you so, can't really get more base than that. And so that's where, when people talk about like, what is the longevity of this career look like moving forward? You know, it's like, right. Do you think music's going to go away? Do you think, right. do you think do, people are going to stop sharpening away. things? You know what I mean? Like, right. no, I mean, it, it's just, it's again, animalistic. It's, it's fundamental. And, and that's another thing that I discovered about the industry that I didn't originally really know or think about, but it really is. And, and that's, it brings me back to the point of like, when you think about like a, a gift, you know, if you're not a knife person, like the, one of the things you often think about is a knife, you know what I mean? Like a lot of people give knife uh, sure. different types of knives as gifts. And it's like, what, why is it that? And it's like, well, what's something that's like one of the lowest risk gifts that everyone can find a use for? It's like, it's a knife, you know what I mean? And so it's like, it's just such a universal thing. It's, it's just so universal. They're like, they're also involved in, in ceremony and ritual, which is very cool. 
Um, like weddings are a great example. I had a chance to make a cake knife for, um, for a cousin recently. And I really, I was like, oh wow, this is like a special occasion tool. It's like not going to be used all the time. It's going to basically be used around joyous events. That's right. There's so many different ways. Like we just talked about like the animal side of it. And then all of a sudden you're like, oh no, it's also front and center. Like you're cutting the cake at a wedding. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Man, it's cool. Yeah. We're lucky. It's a pretty fun industry. (laughs) I I got lucky, which that opens up another kind of, I don't know, thread to the conversation is that like, I got lucky that I moved to Boise because I, I didn't know where the knife industry resided. I didn't know what towns and places were like populated with knife people. And then come to find out I was going to Boise state and I'm like, holy cow, there's a hotbed of like knife people here. There's, you know, Chris Reeve and Gavin Hawk. Yeah. And I'm like, man, like it's here. Like it's, I'm, and I didn't know that was rare. And then I got, you know, I I guess it's not rare, but it's of, it's one of the more populated cities when it comes to like knife related things. Right. And so, yeah, I mean, Portland's one of the places that's huge too, as I Yeah, in the United knows. States right now, you basically have like Boise and Portland and then everybody else is like spread out. And like, okay. I don't know, a lot of a lot of industry and manufacturing like you see is back on the East Coast. Mm-hmm. So it's interesting that something like knives just kind of resides in a more westerly direction. Yeah. Um, which actually, I think it actually kind of makes sense. Some mm-hmm. of it is is a space... Uh, as a function of available space. Like, I just think that, you know, why are there not more knife companies in New York city? Like maybe that the, the proximity yeah. of people, yeah. the, the pastimes, like all of that ties into it. Yeah. Yeah. No doubt. And, and firearms are a big East coast thing, which is amazing, but they are also old storied companies. You know, there's That's, a lot of, there's not a lot of new firearm companies. There's a lot. Yeah. More they new, hit and new, stuck. Yeah. Like that's industrial revolution. The businesses were built. You're Smith and Wesson. Yeah. You stay. Yeah. You know? Yeah. But yeah, that's yeah. true. Ruger, Smith and Wesson. Um, yeah. Connecticut. And Conne- places. Yeah. It's like, it's yeah. crazy. Pretty big time. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, finding, finding my roots in Boise and, and the knife industry, it, it's, it reminds me of the Malcolm Gladwell, you know, conversation about outliers. It's a book that he wrote and, he talks about how like time and place is so important in like the character arc and the career arc of each person. You and, and I like, talk about that a lot, actually. Yeah. Just that, that unique circumstances colliding. Mm-hmm. And obviously some of it comes down to just luck of the draw, mm-hmm. but also I think it, it, it takes something away to not be like, Oh, you're moving in a direction already. And then you run into something that is complimentary. That's right. Which I think is kind of what happened with you. And there's some phrases like I don't hundred percent subscribe to, but I do agree with to an extent is like luck is when is when preparation meets opportunity. Right. You know what I mean? So there's some of that, there's some of that, but also which industry I ended up in was, I would say almost completely determined with where I was because I discovered it was around me very quickly. And if I was in Detroit going to school, sure. maybe the car industry would have been the direction. You know what I mean? So it's like, who knows? But it, it yeah, the time and the place, man, it, it really, it worked out. And that's, I'm just speaking to your point about like, I feel lucky, you know, because the industry really is where I want to be. And yeah, there, there's been moments in time in the early days, you know, I spent a lot of years just kind of, you know, bootstrapping it, trying to get into this industry. And I could tell, you know, like there's onlookers that are like, you really work in this hard in the knife industry. Like there's outsiders that maybe couldn't picture what it was, but right. I, I always thought like, man, it is special. And like, I would always think about what other industry could I pivot to that makes sense to, and nothing jumped out at me quite like it does. You know what I mean? Like there was, there was a staying power involved in, in just seeing what, what it's a passion driven, passion driven industry on the customer side and on the maker creative side, you That's know? Right that that makes it an attractive proposition right and and just the how many people not only have knives but make knives you know what i mean because it's really common that i'm talking to people that maybe i barely know and they're like oh i've actually made some knives you know what i mean like i've i've even if it's in the most fundamental way like i ordered 
a knife tang and I put, you know, a deer horn on it or whatever. Sure. Like there's just so many people that like, that did answer to that like primal instinct and like at least dabbled in it. Oh and yeah. So, Everybody's got an uncle or a cousin or something. Here's like a weird random connection. I met a neighbor four houses down a while back. He's like, Oh, my wife's cousin's a knife maker. His wife cousin's Gil Hibben. <laughs> nice. Like that is, that is a, I mean, he's an industry icon, just a random. Yeah. yeah. Just a connection. Well, yeah. One time I was on Reddit and I was scrolling and it's, it was a guy that said my grandpa or my uncle, maybe it was, or something like that makes knives. And I click on it and I'm like, Bill Harsey. Yeah. I'm like, gee. <laughs> and I was like on Reddit randomly. I'm like, you, and there was like comments like your grandpa's Bill Harsey. It may, might not have been grandpa, <laughs> something like that. Right. But it, but it was, I just thought that it, along those same lines of like, yeah, I want, yeah. It's like whoever this was knew that, that Bill, his uncle or, what, or whatever was important. But then right. the knife industry says like, oh man, like, why aren't you making <laughs> knives? Like get into this thing. We're in a, we're in a pretty interesting period, I think of modern knife history which is a lot of kind of the founding fathers of the modern like Renaissance for, for custom knives are still with us. Right. You, like you mentioned Bob Terzuola earlier, like that's generationally, like he started a movement in knife making. Like he was one of the first knife makers, I think to use like Kydex, uh, maybe the first knife maker to use like G10, you think about what that means now as a modern knife maker, like those guys are still around. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's amazing. That's a super unique period of time. And it's, I have to contrast it. Cause I look at, so my dad is a, is a craftsman. He makes saddles, Western, like horseback riding type Sheridan styles, what they call it. Sheridan Wyoming is like kind of one of the like focal points of like the leather world, especially Western saddle making. There's a museum there with a bunch of saddles in it. And, it, that's so much different than the knife industry. It's, there's a lot of similarities, but to your point that you just mentioned, like saddles have impressively been very similar for a very, very long time, like very, very long time. And it's, it's different because it's like the huge innovations between like an English saddle and an American saddle happened like, I don't know, early 1800s or something like that. And so it's, it's amazing that, you know, in the knife industry, we've seen such change so recently Whereas mm -hmm. in other art forms, you haven't seen that as much, not all, but like some like that. Um, and it, it's interesting to see. And it's cool, like you said, to actually be able to talk to people like that, you know, to, and I think the pace of movement in the knife industry is also an attractive thing to me of just right. that, like this thing's moving. It's a moving target. It creates a challenge with each passing day of like, where are we going? And yeah, it's hard it's to be fun. static. It's fun to, to do that. It's fun to like, to move with it. For, in your experience, like with the saddle industry, is it a, is it a fairly open industry as far as like transfer of information and like sharing process? Yeah, I would say so. Uh, the thing about saddle making, a saddle maker that is truly a saddle maker is pretty rare on, in the world of, of leather work. Saddle right. making is a, is a narrow discipline of that. And so there's really not a lot of saddle makers that are like true saddle makers. And so it, the community, how do you differentiate? Like when you say not a true saddle maker, what would the next version of um, the saddle maker be? I guess you could, you could make the differentiation that like there's people that, that have made a saddle. It's kind of like circling back to the knife maker thing that we mentioned earlier. It's like, there are people that have made a saddle and maybe they just had their fun and then that was it and moved on. You know, but, but not like making some, a living, someone who's either making a living or like trying to make a living at it. You know what I mean? Like make like a career type saddle maker, I guess I would say. Um, and there's just not that many. And so my dad ha is part of an organization and their, their whole motto is hold on to the West. And their, their whole plan is to like broaden the expanse of like people that are interested in that as an art form, you know, and it it's, it's very interesting to watch. And it's with the, you know, they call it the Yellowstone effect with like the Yellowstone TV show. It's interesting to see like the little bit of a stir up that's been in that right. industry of like a resurgence of like Western interest. Like by that, I mean like the wild West. Right. Everything is cyclical. Well, I mean, that ties into like right now with like 
you know, great migrations and people moving from like the West coast, like inland. So like you're getting a lot of people in Idaho, you know, like we had people move to New Mexico, like just people are moving. And then that, that style, that design is something new. The lifestyle is something new. And I think that like drives it too. And then that's, you've got a show that has like widespread popularity and you're like, Oh yeah, cool. Like I do want a flannel and a cowboy hat. Yeah. Right. Oh, Bozeman, Montana looks pretty Boz- cool. Yeah. Until you yeah. look at the price tag. <laughs> yeah, I know. Right. That's right. <laughs> I, I think where I was going with that was the idea that some of the smaller industries um, can be pretty closed as far as like sharing of techniques and the knife industry is the opposite of that. Mm-hmm. Um, it makes it feel very community oriented, like more often than not, if you see a technique or like something you like and you ask the maker, they will help you, if not figure out how to do that exact thing, kind of help you on the way to developing your own similar process. Mm-hmm. And that's crazy. Like it is just so I think overall, like a kind open industry, which is makes it fun. Oh, I agree hundred percent. And I've spoken with people who have been like people have interviewed me that weren't necessarily knife people that may have been, you know, hired by say CRKT to like do some interview content with me or write a blog post or something. And they've touched on a lot of other industries and they've told me that they see the same thing, like right. an openness and like a just general like community type feel yeah. to the knife industry. And part of it, I think, is a product of the size of the industry, too, because it it feels like there's no limit. You know what I mean? Like, it feels like there's no shortage of people interested in knives that want to purchase knives. You know, it doesn't feel like you're fighting for the same customer. There's Yeah, competition, like, isn't isn't like the game, Mm -hmm. right? There's enough. I think there's enough to be able to share. I actually think a lot of the competition exists on the customer side because most of the makers that have some level of demand can come nowhere near reaching their like demand for in terms of output. Yeah. So I think there, I think on the customer side, it can actually be tricky to be like, Oh, I do want you to get this thing, but like, I'm going to try and get it. Yeah. No kidding. And the, and the fact that, there is like a perceived vacuum for some right. of this stuff for, for these knives. It, yeah. I think that that contributes to the lack of like animosity between makers in some ways. Yeah. I, I think that's gotta be part of it. Cause it, if it felt like there was an overwhelming supply and there like wasn't enough people to buy it, maybe things would get a little bit more edgy, you know? Right. Yeah. It's not um, a scarcity mindset. Yeah. Like we look at it and we're like, Hey, we're all here and we all enjoy our work and these people enjoy our work. Yeah. Let's all enjoy yeah. it together. Yeah. It's very, it's very satisfying. I, I really <laughs> enjoy it. And like, it's been a little bit since I've been to the shows, you know, cause I used to hit the blade show shot show, like some of these good ones and you know, the whole COVID thing. And I had two kids in the last, since COVID started, I've had right. two kids, <laughs> which is crazy. But so I, I kind of got out of the show circuit and now I'm just talking about it right now. I just get so excited. We're going to blade show, you know, and man, I can't wait to get back. Like I just, I know we're starting to talk about this community that I like kind of have been distanced from, but it's going to be amazing. Yeah. I'm, I'm very excited. This is the first blade show that I'll have done without a table. Um, mm-hmm. and I had made the decision like for me shows at this point, the value of them is being able to like visit with people in the community. And our, our like show setup has got the pre pandemic had gotten like so big and, and like all encompassing that it just like didn't feel manageable. I also have two small kids. Um, we moved during the pandemic and it's like, it's a lot, right? Like something at some point has to give. So I figure that being able to go to blade show and like reconnect with like the show is, is the value that I see. And I'm, I'm just super excited. Like we're going to be there the whole, the whole show I'm teaching a blade grinding class. Um, and then I'm just going to hang out in the pit. Yeah. And we're going to visit like, with people. Sounds like a good time. So I got, like a, a good time. I, I got a question for you. So All right. we've, I think, made a pretty dang good sales pitch for being in the knife industry. Yeah. So let me tell, let me ask you this. If someone's listening to this and they like, they think this is what I want, what do they do? Ooh. I'm going to answer 
oh man, there's it, it, different ways to go into it, right? So start learning CAD. I was going to say, if you're listening to this on a device, it's an audio program. That means you can go to fusion360.com or whatever the website is, AutoCAD, whatever it is, download Fusion 360 as a free trial and start using it rigorously. Step one, do that I, right now. You know, yeah. like, and the, the reason that I said it was I was thinking like, what's the barrier to entry? And the barrier, like when I started, I mean, I was trying to figure out how to physically make a knife inside of an apartment. Mm-hmm. That is not the best way. Like, yeah, you can do it, but not everybody has the capacity to have a workspace or even the finances to buy tools. And at this point, man, the ability, like you can, like TJ said, you go download fusion and then you can go to like Titans of CNC and get like free CAD training. Like we're in a very interesting period of time as far as technology goes. And like Mm -hmm. past just getting a piece of paper and like starting to sketch, I think the CAD thing is so valuable just as a starting point. And the first thing in my opinion that I would spend money on. So let's say you have a solid or not. Well, SolidWorks is what I started with, but it's pretty pricey and fusion 360 is way more accessible. But the second thing, the thing I would spend money on is get your body to either blade show, blade show West or a major knife show in your area. Any knife show knife shows to me were an imperative. It was like, it was the moment where like dots started to connect for me. And where I started to understand like this economy of knives and things. And Absolutely. I don't think you can feel it and see it without going to the shows, even with social media being what it is and how profound it yeah. is today. You got to go to a show. And so I, I, we had talked about this where like in the early days for me, I, I was a broke college kid. I dropped out. I, I didn't get a job. Like I literally went straight into doing this stuff and trying to like bootstrap it from the very beginning, like totally broke. And I had to go to these shows. I knew I had to go. And so it was like, I'd buy the ticket and like, I would get, uh, there was four friends of mine that would drive down from Springfield and uh, it's Illinois, Springfield, Illinois, right? No, no, Massachusetts. Um, and so they would, they would drive down and they would get a hotel and I would pay for like one fifth of the hotel <laughs> sleep on the and, floor. and I would sleep on the floor. And I yeah. was like, I did that for like four years, dude. And, and it was like, I had to be there. And so that. I'm not trying to trying to say that I like you know has some big sacrifice or something. I'm just saying like you have to find the way to get there because it's so important. It's that important. And all I, I had I was CAD agree. and show, put yeah. my face in front of people at shows. That was all I had for most of my career. For like eight years of my like ten year career, all I had was CAD and showing my face at shows. And so that's. I built the career on that alone. So like, if that's all you can do, you have to start. Absolutely. Well, and and again, the show, like you had mentioned just social media, social media is a huge tool for our industry. It, It revolutionized a lot of, I think just the way knife makers and companies interact with society, you know, writ large. Um, but like you can look at a photo of a knife and understand nothing about the fit and the finish and how it actually is made where you go to a knife show and it starts, it starts to teach you to see. I always Mm -hmm. say like, if, if I bring someone into the shop and like I've had employees over the years, the first job that I try to kind of take on is teaching them how to see the knife. Like see what matters, see the, the, the finishes, the contours knife show. Like you just get that in a flood. Totally. And, and to see people, you know what I mean? To see like, how is it, you know, what are their personalities? Like, what are they, what are the problems of the average knife maker? What are the successes? Who's succeeding and who's struggling? Like, just like the human aspect too, you know, it's like just the whole experience is to absorb culture and product in the knife industry and it's imperative. But is there, is there anything else? Like those are two bullet points. Do you have another one? 
I mean, as far as, as far as like entry into the knife industry. Yeah. Like if you're trying to get the wheels turning, get it going. No, I mean, really, I guess if I was going to go at it from, from a maker standpoint, like you really want to make a knife. Um, I started with no power tools. I built a little forge, like just start making something. It doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. The, the, the gap from never having made a knife to making a really horrible knife is like one of the hardest like thresholds to cross. Um, so, I mean, you can do it like regardless of space, money, like Wayne Goddard wrote a book called the $50 knife shop, which was awesome. Like the tools in it were terrible, but like you could build a knife. There's a guy on YouTube. His name's Aaron Goff, G-O-U-G-H. I believe mm-hmm. it's Goff. Aaron Goff. He has some awesome YouTube videos for like the budget builder, you know, like the Home Depot knife maker. Totally. But, but still a high-end knife, still like quality. Yeah. So, so I'm I'm very analog in the way that I think. Uh, so if books for me are a huge one. Like first knife making book I ever bought was How to Make Knives by Loveless and Barney if you get that book and you read that book, you can make a knife and that's also a great place to start. Like, yeah, you know, and just absorbing information, you know, absorb the ability to absorb information is like a discipline in any, any field that if you're trying to, you know, get started or get involved with something like it's information is power. You know what I mean? Yeah. YouTube has been, is a, is an insane resource. I don't use it enough. Like when you look at any topic you want to learn, like it's a free, it's a free resource. Someone's filmed it, you mm-hmm. know? Yeah. That's pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah. Well, what else, man? What else about the industry? Well, we've, uh, I think we've made the sales <laughs> pitch as to why, why sure. to get into the knife industry. We've touched on how, how about this? Who you, we've talked about the industry as far as like kind of in a, in a, macro way sure who got who got you into this industry like who is a person that was like that was in you know important in the beginning so i remember uh i had there was a instructor at cnm in the machining department i was trying to remember his name i can't ben um he, he saw that I like made a knife. Somehow it came up and he was like, Oh, there's this knife maker down in Bosque farms. It's like 20 minutes from Albuquerque. And he was like, oh, I've got his phone number. And he gave me his phone number. And that was Joe Cordova. Um, who was, he was the first knife maker I met and he was, man, he was awesome. He was kind of a like Jack of all trades, as far as the industry goes, he recently passed away. Um, and the industry definitely lost like a, Mm -hmm. like a true original. Um, but yeah, just seeing the way that he worked and, and kind of like how he worked. I think it, I never worked with him. I tried to apprentice under him. He never wanted an apprentice, but his door was always open and just being able to kind of see process man, it had to have shortened like, I don't know, like 10 years of trial and error, mm-hmm. you know? And then yeah. like second to that, like, or second timeline wise, I had the opportunity to work in Bob Terzuola's shop for a couple it's of amazing. years. Ridiculous, right? Like I knew what it was when I did it, but I, but now I have like a very different appreciation for it. And that was right when I was starting to make folders. And I mean, I can't, I can't even fathom like how valuable that was. Uh, and Bob's oh, a really amazing. good friend and yeah. What about you? What was, well, Bill Koenig, Koenig is, an, right. is the obvious one. I mean, even dating back. So he was, he was really hot on the bussy thing in, in oh, on blade, on blade forms in high school, like big time. Like he, Were you on blade forms? N- not at that time in high school. I am now, but he in high school would buy he like a uh, bussy would do a drop and then people would buy them and then resell them. And so he was, he was like aware of this kind of thing that was happening with those, with the bussy knives and like, Hey, you could, you know, resell them. And he would buy those knives and at, like 16 years old, he would, I would go to his house and he would have like 15 bussies, like swords, freaking 20 inch long, like, 
you know, drop point chopper looking everything like just crazy, you know? And he was, he would resell them and he's, he sold like thousands of dollars worth of knives, <laughs> like in high school. And he asked me, cause I, my dad had the leather shop and he, he asked me, he's like, can you make, cause Busty doesn't sell sheaths. They don't, right. they only sell knives. And he said, can you make a sheath for a knife like this? And I would make knife sheaths and either he would help me sell them on blade forms or I'd sell them on eBay. So that was my first real thing in the knife industry was like selling some Busty sheaths and oh, that were made wow. in leather. Um, but then, so that was the beginning. And then, you know, he did his thing. I went to college and then a year later it was like, then we kind of reconvened for the knife thing and the Koenig knives era. And, uh, and so he was the one that unequivocally, you know, showed me the industry for sure. Um, and then from there, like, as it ratcheted up, like Gavin Hawk became a, a great friend of mine pretty quickly there because I, he's probably the first like real legit guy that I like came to know that was a designer. And then it really kind of took a leap when I when I got to know Ken Onion. So I was in Hawaii on a vacation, just like with my family. Spring break, I was still in college. And I was uh, just weirdly, I was like laying in bed in the in the hotel and I, I like was watching YouTube and I saw a video of Ken Onion and it's a video of him at Blade Show from like years past. So this was like probably 2010 Blade Show. This is on TV? On YouTube. On, oh, on YouTube. On, on okay, I was like, what? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and so I'm looking at it and he's saying like, I'm really interested in kind of like cultivating the next generation. Like he said that. And I was like, man, that's a cool guy. Like that was kind of my first exposure to like, wow, how open these, the big shots really are to like the young guys. And I, and I was like, he's in Hawaii. I'm pretty sure. And I looked it up. I'm like, he's on the same Island that I'm on. And so I messaged him on Facebook and I was like, Hey Ken, probably never heard of me. Uh, I, uh, I'm a, you know, knife designer kind of whatever. Can I, any, any chance at all I could, you know, say hi get to know you a little bit or whatever, you know, just a long shot. I was already there, you know, I had like three days left on the vacation and I'm on the USS Missouri, which is where, (laughs) which is where the world war two armistice with Japan Uh was signed. Like, and I was like 20 feet from where that signature took place. And I get a message from him and he's like, Hey, I know exactly who you are. And I was like, what? I was like, Ken Onion knows who I, what, what? And so I Ken watches. Yeah. And I was like, how, how, how does he know? And I couldn't believe it. And he's like, yeah, come up to my place tomorrow. And, uh, and so I, you know, I just couldn't believe it and went up there and spent like 10 hours at his house and just had just hit it off. And the way he'd heard about me is like, cause I was doing the no tool take apart the Zeneda with, you know, no screws uh, fully disassemblable without tools. And he was working on this, the field strip technology, the CRKT stuff, like behind the scenes, like unreleased. Mm -hmm. And he saw that there was other people working on it. And so he was, he tells me that he was curious to get to know me and was considering reaching out to me. And then I message him and I'm like on his home island, you know, I'm an Idaho boy. So it was like, seriously, one of the most surreal like moments of my just life. And so that was, that was really like the locked in, like. I've, I've, you know, kind of a flashpoint of like, I feel like this is where I belong. Like, this is amazing. I have a feeling that Ken has probably brought a lot of people further into the fold. He's a great ambassador of our industry. He is amazing guy. Really, really cool guy. Just accomplished so much. And like, just is so open down to earth. Like, yeah, it's funny, funny. like approachable. Yeah. 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 Good guy. (laughs) We'll have to dig into the Zenaida at some point. Yeah. Yeah. That, that's is definitely that, a topic for another day. Cause that, yeah. that story that I just touched on, like, man, there's so much there. <laughs> and, but yeah, the, but the, I'm just such, I'm a world war two, like buff. Like I just, I'm obsessed with world war two. And so like I was on the USS Missouri and like where the armistice was signed or the, you know, the treaty or whatever. And like, Ken Onion messages me that he knows who I am. I was like, what? You know what I mean? <laughs> like, yeah, it was, it was like, truly one of the more surreal experiences of my life for sure. Pretty fun, man. So, I mean, what are we doing? We're going to, this is, this is a podcast. Mm-hmm. We're doing a podcast. Yeah. We're going to do more podcasts. That's right. You know? Yeah. I, you know, podcasts really feel like the future for like content consumption for a lot of people. There's a lot of commuters, a lot of people work from home. I'm like, man, you and I talk on the phone all the time. And I think, I think we have pretty interesting conversations and I hope you think that. And yeah, I <laughs> might be biased. <laughs> obviously you agreed to be on a podcast with me, but, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I, you know, we had talked about, it. I don't know who broached the subject first, but it seemed like 
what if we recorded, you know, some of these conversations, like what if someone wanted to listen to it? So sure. I, hope, I, I hope mean, it, it ties in with the industry thing too. And, and social media, because like for both of us right now, like we're working in our businesses, we're, we're trying to spend time with our families. We have small kids and I feel like podcasting is a really approachable way for us to, to be part of the community and to like also just have nice conversations. Right. Um, so it, it, it's one of those timing things. It just feels mm-hmm. like it's a really good time for us to be able to sit down and like have a cup of coffee and, and yeah. talk, talk shop. Well, and the other thing is I'm one of the people that like, if I have a five minute conversation with someone about something, or if like there's a five minute soundbite of me, or of course, sometimes less than that, like I always feel like I was like, I was just getting started. You know what I mean? Like that's, I feel like intellectual just dipping and diving (laughs) and going all over the place. Like we have for the last hour is fun. And it's like, I I think some other people think it's fun too, fun to listen to. So it's like, yeah, I'm looking forward to it, man. I listen to so much like audio weekly. So it's either audiobooks or podcasts. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just realized I'm like, man, it's such an enjoyable format, mm-hmm. you know? One, so. one thing we talked about, I hope this happens is like, I want to answer questions. You know what I mean? Like I want to, I sure. want to know what people that listen to this, if they do, like, what do they think? What do they want to know? You know what I mean? Because yeah, I, I'm of the same mindset that like a lot of these guys are like Ken Onion. That's like, there's gotta be someone listening to this that wants to know what they, how they should, you know, move forward. You know what I mean? Like they might have all the questions in the world and it's like, I want to, I want to answer those questions. And I'm, yeah, I, I feel the exact same way. Like this industry has given me so much provides for my family. Like it's given me like a sense of satisfaction and I love to bring new people into it. You mm-hmm. know, we're talking about blade show, assuming this episode is going to air you know, yeah. before then, like, Hopefully someone comes up and talks to us at the show because they heard this. Who knows? Yeah. I mean, so I'm excited, man. Yeah. Yeah. We're going to have a good time. So I hope you guys, I hope you guys like it and I hope you uh, are okay with our wackiness, uh, (laughs) dorkiness or whatever you want to call it, but we're not going to stop if you don't like it. So it's true. Sorry. Just not listen. Yeah. (laughs) Look at that. Yeah. So anyway, I'll, uh, I think we'll jump off.